Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Bridgehead at AM 530 at 1.30 p.m. My name is Jonathan Van Maren, and I'm the Communications Director for the Canadian Centre for Bioethical Reform. Now, over the last couple of weeks, we've been doing a whole number of interviews with various activists and human rights advocates with, with survivors of the injustices themselves, like Immaculate Ilabagiza, who survived the Rwandan genocide, various authors and media figures, and we've been trying to take a very close, hard look at what goes on surrounding the issues of human rights and how we can respond today in Canada in the 21st century. And we've been talking to a lot of really interesting people, but the guest that we have an interview with today is someone who takes a look at a, at a completely different side of this equation. Dr. Ephraim Zuroff is known as, is probably the most well-known Nazi hunter in the world. He works for the Simon Wiesenthal Center as both a historian, a detective, and the author of its annual status report on the worldwide investigation and prosecution of Nazi war criminals. And he's helped prepare many legal cases against those war criminals himself. And, and, and he'll describe a lot of these things that he does in the interview coming up shortly. Dr. Zuroff has helped to bring many Nazi war criminals to justice by tracking them down, using archives, using historical documents, using old interviews to identify Nazi war criminals, hunt them down where they are, and bring them back to justice in whatever nation will try them. In 1995 and 1996, Zuroff was actually invited to Rwanda to assist the local authorities in their efforts to bring to justice the perpetrators of the genocide, which took place in that country, of course, in the spring of 1994. In recent years, Zuroff has lectured extensively to audiences all over the world regarding his efforts to bring Nazi war criminals to justice, especially regarding his new campaign or the Simon Wiesenthal Center's new campaign called Operation Last Chance, the slogan of this being, It's late, but not too late. For justice. Over the years, he has published more than 350 articles on various topics relating to the Holocaust as well as other issues of concern in the Jewish world because one of the other roles of the Simon Wiesenthal Center is to use the Holocaust experience to show people what can happen when anti Semitism is permitted to flourish. So, without further ado, we'd like to present to you this interview with Dr. Ephraim Zuroff, the top Nazi hunter from the Simon Wiesenthal Center. First, can you just tell our listeners a bit about what your role at the Simon Wiesenthal Center is? Okay. I basically wear two hats. I am the chief Nazi hunter at the Simon Wiesenthal Center, uh, and the person who's in charge of all the Nazi war crimes investigations. I'm also the director of the Center's Israel office. And what sort of things does that entail on a daily basis? I know you have of quite an extensive uh, resume spanning a number of decades. What sort of things uh, do these two roles have you doing? Most of the countries in the world do not want to do so. 
Why would you say most countries don't want to prosecute Nazi war criminals? Is it anything to do with the, just the fact that they're advancing in age, or do you think it, it has more to do with roots of anti-Semitism still remaining? It's affected by their age, but I think the best way to explain it is to compare in a uh, serial killer to a 90-year-old Nazi. In other words, if a serial killer were on the loose in, in Lithuania or in Latvia, Estonia, Ukraine, countries which have a terrible record in terms of punishing Nazi war criminals, mm -hmm. I can promise you the local police and prosecutors would be doing everything possible to find that person and make sure that he's dealt with in a manner which would prevent him from doing any more harm. Right. But what's the likelihood of a 90-year-old Nazi war criminal killing anybody? Zero. Right. So in other words, these countries understand that all they have to do is wait it out and uh, ignore people like me and some Wisdom Center, and they will spare their country the embarrassment, the expense, and the whole mess of it. Mm -hmm. Now, you'll never hear a prime minister or a justice minister in a Western country say, you know, we don't give a hoot about Nazi war criminals and we don't feel like spending the money and enduring the embarrassment. On the contrary, you will always hear the opposite. In other words, the speech will be, we will do everything possible to bring these people who committed such heinous crimes to the bar of justice. Right. But trust me, there are a million and one ways to make sure that doesn't happen. Right. And I noticed uh, when I was on the road a couple of weeks ago that there's been uh, a three more men arrested who served as guards at Auschwitz-Birkenau. What, what do those cases look like, and, and how do you think that they're going to proceed? Okay, that is part of a veritable revolution that is taking place in Germany. And in order to understand how this all happened, we have to go back to the conviction of Ivan John Demjanjuk in Munich in May 2011. Demjanjuk was the first Nazi war criminal who was prosecuted and successfully convicted in Germany in more than four decades, in which the prosecution did not present any evidence that Demjanjuk committed a specific crime against a specific victim. In other words, for many years, if prosecutors wanted to bring someone to justice, they had to prove that they had committed the crime themselves against the person, against the, a victim that they could name. And as strange as this might seem, it's not, sometimes it's not that simple to do. People who served in death camps where there were almost no survivors, like Sobibor or Treblinka, it's not so easy to do. Right. But in any event, the legal landscape was totally changed now when the lawyers at Ludwigsburg, at the Central Office for the Prosecution of Nazi Clarification of Nazi War Crimes, decided to go with a different strategy and say that by his very service at the Sobibor death camp, whose sole purpose was the mass murder of Jews, Ivan Demjanjuk is guilty of at least accessory to murder. Right. And that strategy succeeded. And basically what that conviction did was to give a green light to prosecute anybody who served in a death camp or in the Einsatzgruppen. The Einsatzgruppen are the special mobile killing units. Right, right. Killed a million and a half Jews in the, in the East. The death camps, I have to explain just for our listeners, the death camp is a concentration camp with apparatus for mass annihilation. And there are six of them. They're all in Poland. One of those camps, Chelmno, near Lodz, murdered people in gas vans. 
other five, which is Auschwitz, Treblinka, Belzitz, Sobibor, and Majdanek, murdered people in gas chambers. So, and that, in those camps, more than three million Jews were murdered. So, it's, I estimate that there's about maybe 11,000 people who served either in the Einsatz group or worked in the, in the death camps. Obviously, most of them are no longer alive. But what the German prosecution, leading prosecution agency did, basically in the wake of the Demenial conviction, was what they started looking for people who served in Auschwitz. And they have access to all of the government information. Right. Firstly, one of the ironies of the situation in Germany is that an NGO like the Wiesenthal Center has no access to the population registry. And this is because of something that they call in German Datenschutz, which means data protection. Mm-hmm. Data protection was created in the wake of World War II, in the wake of the Holocaust, to protect people's personal freedoms. Mm-hmm. Ironically, now it's actually helping Nazi war criminals. But the government is looking for them. And they started with a list of about 6,000 people who served in Auschwitz, and they found 50 of them initially. By the time they made the declaration and announcement in September of this past year that they were recommending prosecution, 10 of those people, 10 of those 50 had died. That left us with 40, left them with 40, two of whom could not be located, seven of whom were living outside Germany, 31 living inside Germany, and those cases were recommended for prosecution by local prosecutors. In other words, the central agency for the clarification of Nazi war crimes at Ludwigsburg cannot prosecute the cases themselves. They turn those cases over to individual local prosecutors, depending on the residence of the defendant. And now it's up to those local prosecutors to take the ball and run with it. Right. So from our perspective, first of all, it's a, great, it's a fantastic development. It's absolutely wonderful. We're very happy that this is happening. But we fully recognize that this will now depend on whether or not these cases will be expedited in view of the defendant's advanced age and possible potential health problems. Right. You've written before that of all the Nazi war criminals that you've come into contact with, none of them have showed remorse for their actions. What has it been like for you when you actually finally came into contact with people that you've been searching for years and when you actually you know, got to see them on trial, got to speak with them? What was that like? Okay, first of all, I didn't really get to speak with uh, any of them uh, face-to-face in some sort of casual conversation. Right. Because my contact with them was uh, you know, in the courtroom. And as a uh, spectator, obviously a very interested spectator in in the courtroom proceedings. But of course I followed all the, uh, you know, the interviews, whatever interviews were given and whatever, you know, questioning was publicized. And because the issue of remorse and regret very often comes up. And um, I'm often asked by lectures and other other contexts, so many years have passed since the crimes were committed by these individuals who were young people when they committed the crimes. They're right. probably sorry, they say to me. And I strengthened that question by adding that certainly in the last 20 years, there has been so much information and so much, uh, you know, so many details available about the Holocaust. These people, perhaps they have children or grandchildren who can ask the right questions. These people could, in theory, reach the conclusion, say, you know what? 
mm-hmm. we thought we were doing the patriotic thing, but we made a mistake. And the terrible part of this, for me, and this is one of those things that makes this job so, uh, on a certain level, so frustrating, is that we never encountered a single case in which any of these people said, I made a mistake. I'm right. sorry. How many Nazi war criminals have you been involved uh, in tracking down over the last several decades? And which cases have sort of been the highlight of your career? Because I know a lot of people are just sort of, of curious about your job description as you've described it. And because the, you know, the specter of the Holocaust does loom so large in at least you know, Western civilization, it's sort of a very fascinating to consider that people who perpetrated it are still out there living just normally still in Germany and other places. case for you had the most satisfying conclusion? Who was one of the uh, 
commanders, there were five commanders during the war, during the period that the camp was in existence, and uh, we found him in Argentina, we exposed him, and uh, we facilitated prosecution in, uh, in Croatia. And uh, that was a very challenging case because Croatia was a country where half the people thought he was a hero. Right. And uh, the other half thought he was a devil. And it was a difficult choice to make. In other words, where he should be prosecuted. And in theory, if all that we cared about was the result, then we would have sent him, tried to send him to Serbia. Mm-hmm. Because in, in Serbia, there would be no doubt as to the outcome of the trial. Right. And as I sometimes facetiously say, half facetiously say, within five minutes of his conviction, he'd be hanging from the highest tree in Belgrade. But um, our question was, which country needs the lesson of Yosinovitz? Right. And certainly they don't need the lesson. Everyone knows about Yosinovitz. And so many people had family killed their relatives, friends, acquaintances, murdered in Yosinovitz and in Ostasha camps. But in Croatia, as I explained, half the, I can't say exactly half, maybe even perhaps even more than half or a little less than half people in Croatia view Simon Šakić as one of the great heroes of the Croatian people, someone who knew how to deal with Croatia's enemies. And the irony of the course of this story was that what makes it such a phenomenal success, really, was the fact that Šakić was a fanatic Ustasha. Uh, just to show the Croatian fascists who wanted to rid their country of anyone who wasn't like them. Uh, anyone who wasn't a Catholic, fascist, Catholic, Croatian patriot, patriot in quotation marks. In any event, he even helped arm the Croatian army in the wars in the 90s. And so, and his dream really was, I think it's fair to say, that uh, Croatia become independent from Yugoslavia. Right. It was the dream of many Croatians. So his dream was fulfilled, it came true. And what did that independent new democracy do? It put him on trial. I mean, it doesn't get better than that. Right. So like, that's probably well, one of the highlights of your career. What has been the one unresolved case or unresolved cases that have frustrated you the most? Okay. One case was the case of Albert Heim, a doctor from Althausen, named Dr. Death, a notorious sadist, and uh, someone who horrible things to many inmates of the camp, injected oil, uh, gasoline into their hearts to murder them, Mm -hmm. um, cut off limbs without anesthesia, tortured people, did horrific, absolutely horrific things, and our help was enlisted by the German police, which is something actually relatively rare. Usually there's a certain lack of cooperation between NGOs and governmental agencies dealing with prosecution. But in this case, our help was enlisted by a special unit of the German police who had been entrusted with trying to find Heim. Because what happened in this case was Heim was about to be prosecuted in Baden-Baden, where he lived, in 62. And apparently someone tipped him off and he disappeared. And he is, he wasn't found. I know Simon Wiesenthal was looking for him and he made sure that we put him on our most wanted list in, in the 80s. And... What happened was in 2004, one of his sons committed a, uh, a financial crime in Germany, and all the bank accounts of the Heim family were investigated, and lo and behold, uh, there's a bank account in Heim's name, the Sparkasse in Berlin, a bank in Berlin, 1.2 million cash, 800,000 in, in bank 
shares, in shares, in other words, in stocks. And the money hadn't been touched in years. And the suspicion then became, well, if the money still is in the account, then obviously the guy is still alive. Right. So when we launched Operation Last Chance in Germany in 2005, the German police asked us to name Heim as the number one suspect, even though the objective of Operation Last Chance was to find Nazis we didn't know about, not well, cases like Heim. Right. So, but we agreed. I mean, we welcomed the opportunity to work with the German police, and we had actually very good cooperation with them. And we said, listen, if we can help find someone like Heim, that'd be a great, a great achievement. And we also had one very big advantage in the Heim case, which was that the, the regular prize that we were offering in Operation Last Chance was initially $10,000, then $25,000. But in the case of Heim, the German government was offering 130,000 euros. Wow. So we were able to double, and then to get the Austrians to give another 50,000, because he was an Austrian, born and educated in Austria. Right. And we had uh, 210,000 euros. And that's a lot of money. And that could uh, open the mouths of many people who otherwise wouldn't be speaking to us. But the problem was, and as we devoted a lot of time to this, I went twice to South America, twice to Chile, and twice to Argentina. We and the police basically reached a conclusion that Haim was somewhere between the city of Puerto Montt in Chile and Barroche in Argentina. And this is because his daughter, he had a daughter, an illegitimate daughter from a mistress who was living in Chile. And she traveled very often to Barroche. Barroche was notorious as a place that many Nazis had found shelter after the war. Mm-hmm. Uh, it looked as if all, all the arrows pointed in this direction. And we were hoping, we had hopes of finding a person. There was even one informant who met Heim's, uh, Heim's son-in-law in a certain place and, uh, you know, on an island opposite Puerto Montecholi. And this guy was coming, his son-in-law was coming out of a supermarket with his hands full of groceries. And this informant said to the guy, well, what are you doing on the island? Because he had originally lived on the island. The other one had originally lived on the island, but it left. And he said, well, I'm going to visit an elderly relative. Now, this person had worked for the son-in-law. He knew that the son-in-law had no family on the island. And all of a sudden, everything seemed to come to place. And this person also knew the son-in-law had a dacha in a very secluded place. It would be incredibly hard to find. Right. But it turns out that uh, it wasn't Haim, and the dacha had been destroyed by the elements a couple of months previously. And... And what ultimately turned out was that several months after this trip, the New York Times and ZDF, that's German Channel 2, revealed as a result of an interview with one of his sons that who claimed, after saying he hadn't seen his father for 50 years, that uh, Hyman actually died in Egypt in 92. Right. And uh, some relatives subsequently gave the police a suitcase full of documents regarding his stay in Egypt on the condition that the reasonable center not get key information. Right. But they showed it to us, and uh, it was obvious that at some point Haim had lived in Egypt. The problem was that the, the son claimed the following in terms of, you know, that natural question is, if he died in 92, well, where's the body? Right. Okay. So the son told the following story. In the wake of the peace treaty between Israel and Egypt, Haim converted to Islam for fear that Egypt might extradite him to Israel. Obviously, in his mind, 
Palestine, the conversion to Islam was going to protect him in Egypt right. from being extradited. But in any event, so he, uh, before he died, according to the son, he, uh, once again, after he converted to Islam, he was adopted by a Muslim family. Now, before he died, he told his son he wants to donate his body. You know, he's, a, he's a doctor after all, right? So mm-hmm. it makes sense on a certain level. But the Muslim family found out about it, and against Islam, the, the Sharia, against Islamic religious law, to have an autopsy, or to use the body, to cut up the body in any sense. He's supposed to bury it whole. And the Muslim family found out about this, and they kidnapped the body, they stole the body. But they couldn't give him a normal funeral because they had stolen the body. Right. No permission to have it. So what did they do? According to the sun. Cairo has quite a few mass graves for people who have no resources to have a normal funeral. So they threw the body. This is the story anyway. They threw mm-hmm. the body into a mass grave. This is supposedly in 1992. Right. Now, go find, this body. Go find the body. Impossible. There's no way on earth you could find it. Yeah. Which, which is a perfect solution for them. In other words, in theory, it gets us off Heinz track and in any event prevents us, if it is true, it prevents us from ever, from ever confirming it. In a sense, he's sort of torturing us. <laughs> right. <laughs> and uh, the issue remains, uh, remains unresolved. Right. So just one final question for our listeners. What would your message be to our listeners as, as a Nazi hunter and as a representative of the Simon Wiesenthal Center? My message is that uh, justice is extremely important. It's one of the things that we owe, we owe the victims. In other words, every one of the Nazi's victims deserves an effort to be made to find the person, persons who turned them innocent, men, women, and children, into victims. These are the last people on earth who deserve any sympathy because they had absolutely no sympathy for their victims, some of whom are actually older than they are today. So when you look at these people, and I can promise you that when the time comes for them to go to court, either on their own initiative or the advice of their attorneys, they will make every effort to look as sick, frail, and as out of it as possible. So don't think of them in those terms. Think of them when they were at the height of their physical strength and they devoted all their energies to mass murdering innocent men, women, and children. That's why they're in court today. Well, Dr. Zeroff, thank you so much for taking the time. My pleasure. I suggest they read the book, Operation Last Chance, One Man's Quest to Bring Nazi Criminals to Justice. Go to our website, www.operationlastchance, that's one word, dot O-R-G, you can follow me on Twitter. I'm at E, E, capital E, capital Z, U-R-O-F-F. And, of course, the Wiesenthal Center's website, www.wiesenthal.com. All right, Dr. Zeroff, thank you so much. You're welcome. Have a wonderful day. Well, everyone, thank you so much for being with us. That was Dr. Ephraim Zuroff, the top Nazi hunter from the Simon Wiesenthal Center, just discussing with me what exactly we can do to help bring justice to those who survived the Holocaust. And as we look at these issues of human rights, we must recognize that we have to have truth, mercy, 
and justice. We hope that anybody who wants to take a look at this interview it will be posted online at unmaskingchoice.ca as well as all of the other interviews that preceded in these weeks. Thanks so much for following along with us and we hope you all have a great weekend.